Hello there, and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as... How uh, reliable do we think this kind of decision making <laughs> is in real life? I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are rejoined by Kara Bach. Hello, hello. To discuss Titanic on the 25th anniversary of its long, long run at the box office, and also while its director, James Cameron, has another movie out you may have heard of, Avatar The Way of Water, which is currently out as of this recording. So we thought it was a good time to go back and look at Titanic and see what it had to say about the call to love. I've seen this movie many times. Kara, uh, what's your relationship with this movie? I want to say complicated, but that feels overwrought. Uh, so... <laughs> Honestly, like, I haven't watched this movie in probably 15 years, wow. maybe 20. It's, just, it's been a long time. It's one of those movies where because it's really long, it's not one that rises to the top of my like, I feel mm. like watching a romance. I think it's also an interesting movie. And I'm glad that I it's a commitment, but I'm glad I watched it as an adult. I think I just picked up on so much more in terms of other messages it's not just about their relationship like i think when i was younger i remember watching it and like it's a tragedy but i think the sort of masterful storytelling of james cameron is just more obvious now that i'm a more aware and be like i watch a lot more movies and i think just the characters and the way that he sort of portrays the real tragedy of like you know, the lower classes and the like mothers with children. Like, you know, I have a kid now. So mm. I just feel like I was crying even more than I think I probably was when I was younger. Cause I just think I like, you understand the depth of the loss. And also, I think, I think he does a really good job of letting you know that people are actually dealing with the fact like I am going to die. Like I'm like here in my list. Yeah. It, for most of these people, it was like, there's a lot of panic and like attempt to save it, to save themselves. But then there are just some of these really interesting, quiet vignettes and we can get into this later, mm -hmm. but there are some really interesting, quiet vignettes of just acceptance and understanding of the situation and kind of like, how do you handle the reality of like, I'm, I'm dying here yeah. and it's over. It feels almost like two movies, like the first half of the movie, maybe there's three. The first half of the movie is like this fun love story. The middle part is kind of an adventure, like action movie. And then the last half is like, or the last you know, third is like a deep drama. Yeah, I mean, it's long enough to have enough in it to work for three movies, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Like totally. serious meditations on death, like you said, we'll get into later. I have some stats on on the time in this movie. It starts out with this framing device, and I don't remember it taking as long to get to the Titanic as it took this time watching it. <laughs> <laughs> that opening scene is a little brutal. Because <laughs> there's, there's half an hour of non-Titanic stuff in this movie, where you are in the modern day with old 100-year-old Rose and the salvage crew with Bill Paxton. There's a lot of time spent there, and mm. most of it's early on. So that leaves a little over two and a half hours of actual movie like on the titanic in 1912 before during and after it goes down there's a full hour from the time the iceberg hits the ship till it is fully sunk that sequence is like a real marathon well isn't it basically happening in real time like once they hit yeah the iceberg it's like that's how long it took for the titanic to sink and you're like experiencing the whole thing exactly that part of it is real time which is kind of crazy when you think about it for just like how huge it was. 
So Mr. Andrews, almost immediately, he's like, it's going to take an hour. He's like, once you've reached the fifth lock hold, like, you have an hour. We got to go. I really enjoyed his character. He's kind and he, like, has clarity. Yeah, he's like a comforting presence who... Also, nobody can question his expertise about the ship because he designed it. So that when he tells Rose that she's on the right track or she's like really understood something, his word outweighs everybody else's who everybody else who doesn't really care about or respect Rose. Yeah, definitely. Which is where we meet Rose at the beginning when she is, to quote old lady Rose, a, uh, a prisoner being brought in chains on a slave ship back to the U.S., which I don't think is particularly sensitive phrasing to people who are actually on slave ships. (laughs) Let's call it a gilded cage. Yeah, gilded cage is a much better way to put it. If only Big Jim had had somebody else to review his scripts. (laughs) This this would definitely not happen in 2023. (laughs) No. One thing I thought was um, was weird, because you think, well, old lady Rose is going to be a completely different person than young lady Rose. They both bring pictures with them when they travel. Mm. That's like a habit that she kept where old lady Rose is bringing pictures of her family, real pictures. Young Rose is bringing paintings by, you know, artists who won't amount to anything. At least according to Cal. Cal, who is the worst. We'll we'll talk about him later. But (laughs) well, it's funny you mentioned the paintings. So this is sort of a fun fact for anyone who's not like an art person. But if some of her paintings seem familiar. That's because they are. Two of them in particular. It's sort of egregious. I had to go and double check. I was like, wait a second. That's like a painting I saw in a museum. I'm pretty sure. Like, so the first one is Picasso's Mademoiselle de Avignon. And that's... Sure, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> but like, that's a painting you can go see. Apparently, there's some controversy. Like, James Cameron did not have permission to use that painting in the movie. And uh, I think he had to, like, pay some restitution to the Picasso family afterwards. But So he, he illegally used a painting that wasn't even historically on the boat? Correct. When it sunk. Correct. Okay. <laughs> it's a it's a painting that like was never on the Titanic. Also, the Monet that you see also never on the Titanic. <laughs> My guess is that he was trying to dumb it down for people who may like, oh, you guys will know that this is Picasso. You know, this is Monet. But you could would think that they could like sort of fake it or use something else. Yep. Like pick something that was lost to history. We don't know where this painting is. That's what I assumed it was. No, you can go see both of those in a, in a museum <laughs> so today. You didn't dumb it down <laughs> enough for me. So I'm not, <laughs> not an art person. Yeah, Rose seems to know everything uh, that will eventually have a legacy. Because she knows about Picasso, even though Cal thinks he won't amount to a thing. She is read up on Freud. Mm. Mr. Ismay thinks he's a passenger on the ship, right? And then... Monet, do you know his work? Like, okay, Rose, we get it. You're from the future. (laughs) (laughs) You have excellent taste. We understand. Right. So one thing that's notable about the movie early on, this is like a very key plot point, obviously, is the way that Rose is treated by her fiance and her mother and really everybody in her life uh, until she meets Jack, where she's not treated as an acting person, which is something that our guy... JP2 wrote a book about before he became Pope, whose title either gets translated as the acting person or person and act. But this is something that kind of applies to Rose. I think it's probably overcompensated for in favor of like radical individualism, but Mm. it still hits on a good point. The person's nature as an acting agent needs to be respected and all the wealth in the world isn't going to make up for that. 
what JP2 says is no one else can substitute his act of will for mine. It's like not, it's not transferable even in principle. Yeah, I feel like that's often tricky about some errors in modernism. You know, when you're talking about the sort of in favor of radical individualism, where it's like, well, the kernel of truth is correct that the individual has deep value and, you know, is intrinsically valuable at all stages of their life. And we're not merely utilitarians and that matters. And yet, you know, when that gets taken too far because it's not put in the context of our creator, you end up in some weird places. Right. Like, I think if you take it too far, you just, instead of like liberating Rose, you just become Cal (laughs) because he (laughs) does value his own individual will over and against Rose's. So that's just the end of the extreme. Can we talk about Cal for a second, since you have brought him up? Yeah, sure. Uh, was it was it that his pitch, "Open your heart to me, Rose," was so was so appealing that you you couldn't understand why she wouldn't go for that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's oh man, oh what's a so? Here's my central question about Cal. Let's just say everybody should know Cal's the worst. I don't have too much more to say about that, other than like he's the worst and he's abusive. But he's the worst. Yeah. So do you think he, like all the stuff at the end where he's like still searching for her, do you think it's about possession and about like, I own her? Do you think it's maybe about obsession mm-hmm. with her? Or do you think he like truly cares for her on some level in whatever way he can? I mean, this is a deeply unhealthy relationship, just to be clear. Yeah, right. Like, even if it were the case that he did care for her, it wouldn't excuse <laughs> any of it. Yeah, exactly. I No, I don't think he, he cares for her even in the end. I think he his identity is built on, I always get what I want, uh, and mm. Rose is what, not who, I want. Yeah. And the, the jewel is the flag that signifies that, right? Yeah. So if he can't have her, he's at least going to have the jewel back. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned about the like the what, because there are so many times where they sort of underscore the point that she is seen sort of like a possession of his, where people say like, oh, she's stunning. It's stuff that you say about things, not about people. Or at least if you're going to say that she's stunning, you say that to her face, like, oh my gosh, you look beautiful tonight. Or like, you know, you can say that someone's stunning, but you don't say it to like their spouse as if like, wow, you just like bought cattle. I'm like, that's a, <laughs> that's going to make you a lot of money. Like, good choice, Cal. Yeah, exactly. Went to the market, bought the best one. <laughs> Do we think that cartoon villain Cal's idea of marriage is intended to be like a meaningful commentary about the, the essence of what marriage is? Like Cal thinks marriage is this way. He's right. It is an instrument of the patriarchy and therefore marriage is inherently bad. Do we think the movie's trying to say that or is it just saying this is the way things were in 1912? So say explicitly, like, what do you, how has, how did he express what he thinks marriage is? Like, you're my wife, Rose. You won't challenge me. Uh, you know, what I, what I say goes, you've agreed to basically do whatever I want. Because I'm the one that's providing this lifestyle. I'm not sure I would say it was commentary about the time period. I think it is commentary about like a toxic relationship. Mm -hmm. It's clear that Cal's a bad guy and he like doesn't see Rose as a human being who has her own interests and her own sort of dignity and worth. Like she's clearly like a really interesting woman and he doesn't value her at all. I felt more like it was 
aiming at that. If anything, it felt a little bit like set up as a contrast to Jack, who immediately sees all of these things about Rose. Like he almost immediately picks up on like, you're really smart, you're stubborn, you're like haughty, you've got all these. Rose, you're no picnic. Yeah, exactly. And so it feels almost more like in contrast of here's what a bad relationship is. And a bad relationship is like somebody who doesn't see the other person for who they are. And maybe it is. I mean, it's definitely some commentary on like class and the way that women are treated. But it felt more about their relationship in terms of like to the plot of the movie. And it sort of feels like the commentary is almost secondary and more of like a, this is just, this is a common thing that we know. The social dynamics feel more like an, a point that he was trying to make. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like all the stuff with the mom and how like they were left penniless. And so I'm going to have to go back to working. Do you want that? Did you feel differently? If I had to decide, I would say, no, this movie is not inherently criticizing the institution of marriage. Because there's a thing that Leo says much later on where he says, like, Rose, you're going to live through this. You're going to have lots of babies. I want to say that's an implication that he wants her to have a conventional family, like getting married and having children as something that is like good and makes, you know, is part of what makes life work living. Yeah. But no, I I think he made a a good point about how the filmmakers are intending there to be a very strong contrast between Cal and Leo or sorry, we keep going back and forth. Billy Zane is Cal. Leo obviously is Jack. So between Cal and Jack, where he sees her, they literally say that like she's noticing his ability as an artist. And she says, you see people. And he says, I see you. Overt, explicit opposition to how Cal treats her. And also that line, I see you became the, the mantra in Avatar. Um, they say it like over and over again as like this culturally significant phrase. Oh, interesting. So it's a thing that James Cameron is into. Yep. <laughs> I think here it's, it's probably articulated better or portrayed better than an Avatar where it's really about seeing the dignity of an individual person. Obviously, this is a love story, and I think it's hitting on something that is true about love that like, I think would jive with things that we know about from love and responsibility, which is that like you have to truly know a person and to like, maybe this is like 2023 speak, but the idea of feeling seen yeah. is... I think what a lot of people mean by like, you actually really understand who I am. And I feel like that is kind of what he's getting at with like, even though it's completely unrealistic and extremely sentimental, I think the reason why this is an enduring love story is that the love is not superficial. They really try to make it clear that they truly understand each other on a deeper level and that there's, we, you know, again... This is completely unrealistic to know somebody that quickly. But I think that it is getting at like what we would understand as authentic love, where you truly know the person and you are accepting all that they are while also willing the best for the person. I feel like it's getting at that feeling that most people know is more real rather than just the like head over heels, Romeo and Juliet kind of superficial love. You know, it's funny, when we first talked about sentimentalism, uh, like a year and a half ago, when we were first going through Love and Responsibility, we tried to come up with movies and stories 
as examples of characters meeting and falling in love within a day or a week. And I think we've done like 10 movies since then that we didn't think about at the time. <laughs> and I was thinking, well, this is like the ultimate example of that. Jack and Rose are one of the most well-known couples in movies. But, you know, you you kind of make it... You, Making me walk that back a little bit. Like, this movie definitely has sentimentalism in it. I don't think they do really know each other. No. But insofar as that's possible on a ship voyage, I think there is some substance there, maybe more than I would, had been giving it credit for. Because, like, Jack definitely does respect her. You know, he meets her while she's attempting to commit suicide, and so he's not going to reject her for being vulnerable around him. So there's, like, there's some real trust there. That's, yeah, okay, it's microwaved, like it's trust that doesn't take very long to develop. But, you know, in those circumstances, I could see theoretically how that could, how that could happen. Yeah. But, and they make real sacrifice. Like, I kind of forget about the number of times, or I had forgotten about the number of times that, you know, they go back through real peril for each other during the sinking. I mean, getting yeah. him out of that room is like, you guys are like, this is really cutting it close. This is bad. <gasps> when he's handcuffed to the pipe and she has that fire axe and he says, yeah. like, I trust you. He's willing to get his hands cut off accidentally <laughs> because he cares about her. Yeah, it's like, all right, let's do it. We also got to get out of here. <laughs> Just to be clear, I'm not saying that this is like, you know, a really uh, model love story or anything. But I think that like at a, on a like just a natural human level. We know that the really superficial sentimentality driven relationships are less satisfying. And I feel like the reason why this, this is actually a more satisfying love story is because they do sprinkle in there some understanding of the deeper person, but that doesn't mean that they actually do know each other. No, right. But you know, he, he makes a monetary sacrifice where Cal's bodyguard tries to pay him off with 20 bucks. And I, I looked it up with inflation. That would be like $600 today. So that's not nothing. They make it pretty clear that like, even though Jack is somebody who's like, he won the ticket in a poker game and he, you know, is living a pretty tumbleweed lifestyle. He seems to be like a man of integrity. Yeah. You know, a good, Maybe. good Midwesterner. <laughs> right. <laughs> Midwestern nice. Not that I'm biased. I think there's one test for this movie, which I think is like the big indicator that we shouldn't apply it too much to reality. It's not just the the nudity and the premarital sex, which we can like rule out out of hand, like not exemplary, shouldn't be endorsing that. But there's a scene where he is framed by the Cal's bodyguard that he has stolen the jewel. It's like in his coat pocket. And that's how he gets arrested and handcuffed to the pipe. And Rose eventually has to decide, do I believe that he did it and he was just trying to take advantage of me? Mm. Or do I think he really loved me? And she eventually decides, obviously, for in Jack's favor and goes back to rescue him. And he asks her, how did you find out I didn't do it? And she says, I didn't. I just realized I already knew. How uh, reliable do we think this kind of decision making <laughs> is in real life? I mean, in general, I would say I think Jack is a more reliable character than Rose is. Rose seems like a little bit of a hothead. And yeah, like she doesn't really know. But no, I would agree. There's uh, there's not a whole lot of evidence based anything going on with Rose. Well, she's pretty she's she's sharp. I know. What would you say? I'm thinking of the people who have had to make a decision like this in real life, whether to ignore sort of ambiguous warning signs in a relationship. 
about someone you feel strongly about. Mm. How many people have said they ignored the warning signs to their peril? And it seems like this is sort of setting a bad example in that way. Like, well, it worked out for Rose and Jack because Jack really did love Rose. But if you look at the, the facts available to Rose at that time... It takes a lot of intuition, uh, which is sort of guaranteed by the screenwriters who, or by James Cameron, who know who knows that Jack is a good guy and is not actually taking advantage of her for that reason. But you don't have that assurance in real life. I, f- I feel like it's more a commentary on Cal than like her realization that like she knows that Cal would do anything to get what he wants and realizing that like, I think that Cal says something about Jack. Now I, I need to go back and rewatch, but I thought that he said something and that's when it clicks for her. They're like, oh no, you did it. That It was like less of a, oh, I just trust Jack so much and more of a like, oh no, Cal is definitely the one who planted it like because he's a total... Oh, like he gave himself away? I think so. I think oh. he like says something a little bit where you're like, Rose is kind of, wait a second. You guys are, like you would do that. Like you are a dirty rotten liar. <laughs> like... Maybe later, but at the time when she has to decide, like they say, look, he stole this coat off of somebody, which is actually true. That's just who he is. And I don't think she has, because she says earlier, like there's truth, but no logic about the paintings. Like there's this criticism of a kind of, of their idea Mm. of logic where the right way to live is not concerned overly with logic. And even if there are warning signs pointing to some bad conclusion. If your heart is telling you otherwise, then you shouldn't listen to those quote unquote logical warning signs. I don't know. Well, I feel Trust like verify. It's, yeah, <laughs> definitely. It's, generally, I would not take any life advice from this movie. Yeah. But I do think that your point about the logic, it feels a little bit more to me like not rejecting logic, but rejecting a set of values. Like you're thinking about her mom and it is logical to be like, we're going to like, we have nothing. This guy is our ticket out. You should be grateful that he wants to marry you because this is our ticket out. And there's like an obvious, yes, logic uh, to it, but it's also more about the fact that like her values are misplaced, right? It's like valuing her comfort and position in society more than it is the fact that the guy is abusive and actually doesn't care about her daughter at all. Which, according to a a different logical calculation, would be irrelevant, but not this kind of logic that is governing their livelihoods. Yeah. Speaking of their livelihood and what it takes to live in that class, should we talk about uh, some of the upstairs, downstairs class distinctions? Yeah. Among the the crew and the passengers as sort of a social commentary. Yeah. Because they say, okay, well, there's the luxurious first class ship and the cramped quarters of steerage. It's not just about, oh, okay, the rich people have nice things and the poor people don't. It's that it's not just when it comes to luxury goods. It's also when it comes to necessities. When it comes to the life-saving measures, the class distinction is still there. Yeah. And there's no recognition. There's no seeing the value of the human person beyond those class distinctions. Like, obviously, the movie is sort of set on the class distinction because she's super upper crust and he's, you know, down on the third class level. Yeah. And they, you know, they've got the party and the kind of underscoring the gilded cage-ness of, like, the upper crust dinner versus the, like, fun dance party downstairs. Mm -hmm. But there's also... I just think that they do a nice job of kind of, like, weaving in all the other pieces of it, of just, like... 
you see the families and the people who are, you know, like going to America for a better life. I just feel like like they could have been a lot heavier handed about it. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Jack's character is done well in that regard and that he's just a really positive force. Right. He's like, I like this is just the hand I've been dealt in life. And like, there's no reason to like not enjoy what I do have. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's also like very obviously uh, heavy handed stuff like the mom who's like, there won't be any lower class people on my lifeboat, will there? <laughs> yeah. Right. Will the lifeboats be separated according to class? <laughs> Thanks, oh mom. My gosh. I, you know, I would have liked one more heavy handed scene because they show there's a juxtaposition between the, the hoity toity dinner party and the cool, fun, lower class party that they go to afterwards. I would have liked another pair of scenes like that. We get half of another pair. We get the Sunday service where they're singing, you know, with the captain leading the worship service to the kind of upper crust waspy people. And we know there's a priest on board. We'll talk about him later. But he's not in that scene because I am assuming he is, if it's Sunday, he's downstairs in steerage celebrating mass. And I would have liked to see the the kind of immigrant mass scene that presumably would have been taking place. Yeah, definitely. I would have liked to have seen Molly Brown be at the Catholic service too. So several years ago, I visited a friend in Denver and like she was apparently, I won't call her a devout Catholic. I don't know that much about her, but she was definitely like one of the main builders of the cathedral in Denver or I don't know if it's still the cathedral, but like at the time getting a cathedral built there, like she was well known as being a Catholic. I mean, she was Irish. And so I feel like it would have been a nice bit of characterization to like have her be there. And I mean, she did a couple of things that they try to show that she obviously is like a more caring person. I do have some stats on the survivors that don't quite follow the class narrative of the movie. Oh, interesting. So across all classes, here are the survival rates. There were a lot more men on the ship partly because of the crew and partly just because men could pay their own way because they were allowed to work for a living at the time. So there were a lot more men on the ship. So these rates are not indicative of the whole ship's survival rate, but just men and women, 19% of men survived the Titanic and 74.7% of women survived the Titanic. Wow. And this extends even if you go against class lines. The survival rate for first class men was higher than the general survival rate for men. It was 32%. But the survival rate for third class women was higher than it was for first class men. It was 49% for third class women. Huh. Which, you know, doesn't fit. They don't have, obviously, shouldn't be criticized for that. Like, that's too granular and statistical for the movie to be able to portray accurately. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I had also read about the like, you know, locking them downstairs. There's no evidence that something like that happened. Oh, really? Okay, good. They did have those like the gates were there um, apparently to quarantine people if there was an outbreak of disease, which <laughs> still feels a little, okay. a little sad. So they were there in the sort of architecture of the boat, but there's no evidence that people were actually forced to stay down there. Everybody loves Mr. Andrews, the ship designer, but he presumably signed off on those gates. What's up with that? <laughs> as egalitarian as it could be. Oh, this is also interesting. Fun fact. So apparently the lifeboats were insufficient, but mm. at the time they were apparently twice what the requirement was by like the British Board of whatever. Oh. 
They were actually like, they had way more than they were required to have on board, even though it wasn't enough for everybody. I guess the idea with the requirements, like not in this situation, but as the British board of whoever writing the requirements, like the lifeboats are maybe intended to be used multiple times, like to ferry people back and forth between a a ship that is faltering, but not yet sunk and uh, the rescue ship. So... I don't know that that I think you're you're you have modern eyes on it. Oh, am I giving him too much credit? Okay, <laughs> it's like eh, you know we should have some lifeboats. We like require you to have enough for a quarter of the pe- like not thinking about an actual disaster. Okay. I mean that's been part of the like legacy of the Titanic was a complete overhaul of like oh my gosh major accidents do happen. <laughs> You've got to be prepared for mm, them. Okay, that sort of gets to the whole unsinkable ship idea. I think it's kind of coming out of like, you know, the this is the early 1900s. And I think in the 1800s, you just had more of like a lack of regard for human life. Like if you think about yeah, sure like too. Catholic social teaching really came out of the 1800s and the Industrial Revolution. I just think that people like that's just not the way that they thought about it. Right. It's not like, hey, we have to make sure that there's a boat for everybody. I don't know. I'm not a historian, but that's more the sense I get is that it's like there were... Weren't that many things where people felt like, oh, we have to protect everyone all the time. You know, Titanic was definitely one of those things where like, oh, accidents do happen and you need to be prepared. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) You want to wave hi? Hi, baby. He says hi. (laughs) Speaking of unsinkable ships, she's huge. (laughs) One thing I did not realize, they don't draw too much attention to it, but the reason the ship hits the iceberg, according to this movie is not just that the ship was going too fast in, you know, uncharted northern waters and all that. You know, they had lookouts, but the lookouts are distracted in the moments before the iceberg hits. Do you remember what it is that is distracting the lookouts? Isn't it like Rose and Leo, like, make it out? (laughs) Yes, it is. Rose and Jack caused the sinking of the Titanic, according to this movie. (laughs) On the note of death, which this this movie kind of hammers over and over again, It doesn't ever really like focus on the deck chairs to make you think about deck chairs on the Titanic. I want to say between the upper class concern with things that are not really that important in the face of death, which is what the deck chairs in the Titanic phrase is about, and the actual confrontation with death. Do you think that expression had anything to do with inspiring the movie? Uh, James Cameron heard the phrase one day and he thought, you know what? No one's ever really done the Titanic, right? Let's do <laughs> let's do the deck chairs on the Titanic. And what does that really mean? So seeing as I know that he's just obsessed with the Titanic, I'm going to go say no, but... <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I mean, there are many times in this movie where I was reminded that like James Cameron is a great filmmaker. And like I think great filmmakers are great storytellers and great storytelling gets at the heart of the human condition. Mm-hmm. And... The thing that I found most compelling in his sort of treatment of death is what you're talking about, just like the way that people act in the face of death. It was just really apparent and sort of the stages of it here too, right? Like it was really apparent that the upper class people, A, assume that they're going to make it because obviously, and B, like are never really faced with the terror of like, I'm going to die. Maybe until the very end, there were, you know, a handful of the people who, like, I thought the Guggenheim guy yeah. was, like, sort of hilarious because he's like, 
I'm going, it's like, I'm dressed to the nines. I'm going down with the ship. Let's have some brandy. And apparently that's true. That that was pretty faithful to the historical record. Yeah. Apparently also the couple in the bed is actually like a real couple. It's mm. the Strausses who, I think he's either the founder or at the time was the owner of Macy's. Wow. And so basically he refused to be an elitist and go, you know, because he was first class. And so when he realized that, like, no one was making it out, he wasn't going to do anything. And his wife refused to leave him. Wow. They truly did die in their bed together. And I mean, they show them too, like in nice dresses. So they are upper class. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, the panic of the third class where they understand what's happening. I think the like what I keep coming back to the scene of the mother, the Irish mother, who's like was there with the kids at the gate. And when they're told that they're not going to make it, just like faces the fact that they're going to die. And like they go back to their room. She kind of knows how life has treated people like her and that there's not a lot to not a lot to be done to get out of it. Yeah. Well, and I just think you see the different, it's like, that's one sort of resignation. There are those who are trying to be selfless. You see the guy who goes back at the end to get people, you see the people who are like, you know, just fighters and clawing desperately to survive. I don't know, I think it, it was like a very interesting treatment of just like the different ways that people deal with the certainty of death and like, you know, it's coming. Yeah. Because there's just not enough lifeboats. The the really famous nearer my God to thee scene with the string quartet mm. playing as the ship is going down and the guys deciding, even though they think nobody's listening to them. We're listening to them. Dang it. <laughs> we care. <laughs> well, it's also an interesting sort of it's an interesting point about art. Also, like being for the artist. Yeah. And it felt kind of like they were doing it for themselves. And it, yeah, it, it matters that it happens, even if even if you don't get the audience feedback that you want. Well, it's kind of like like music and art matter, yeah, to the person even you know just existing. Yeah, I think between that and the actual priest scene where he's reading from Revelation twenty one, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The former heaven and the former earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, God's dwelling is with the human race. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will always be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there shall be no more death or mourning, wailing or pain. The old order has passed away. Jim really knocked it out of the park with that (laughs) selection of uh, scripture passage. I think he's trying to communicate not just the the immense sorrow and the immense consolation that are coexisting in that moment. But he's also trying to say, this is not just about the ship in 1912. This is not just about these 2,000 or 3,000 people or whatever it was. This is about us. This is about the world. And this is going to happen for everybody. The certainty that they have about the ship going down is the certainty that we have about death one day. And this range of responses to imminent death is... I think, meant to represent the range of responses that we have in life to more remote death. Mm -hmm. I think that's the real ambition of this movie, not just the technological elements of putting, you know, the Titanic on screen in a convincing way and not just doing a massive, you know, water tank and people sinking into the water and all this stuff. I think the real ambition is to show you your, show you the whole range of options of your eventual death and mine too, everybody's. I don't think he cares about, about the memento mori devotion explicitly, but I think that's a direction we could go. That's one of the reactions that we could have to it. Yeah. 
And it's interesting, too, in that particular scene, just like there's literally like a gaggle of people clinging to their faith in that moment, which I thought was just like a really compelling visual of like they're literally holding on to each other as the boat is tipping up, but also like clinging to the priest Mm -hmm. in a very tangible manifestation of clinging to their faith in the last hour. And, you know, good for him. He starts out reading from it and then he has to sort of put the book down and hang on to that, whatever that thing was that he was hanging on to. And the people are clinging to his other arm and he's just, he keeps reading it from memory. So back to Jack and Rose. We got to go back to them. Was our couple. <laughs> Should we get into the whole, was there room for Jack on the raft or not? I feel like that, that one's been done to, pardon the pun, but it's been done to death. <laughs> I watched a very convincing thing that like yes they there was room i as somebody who once tried to get into a hammock with my husband <laughs> i would just like to say that i think the, the bigger challenge is the logistics of getting on the board which is what they show i think i think that's real i think that's a real challenge when yeah. you're like exhausted and freezing like i i'll give them a pass on that one that, that would have been rough <laughs> They do try to get him on the raft and it, it just doesn't work. And their critical thinking skills are kind of spent at that point. Yeah, totally. I'm like, I think it, it all like, you know, maybe could have more effort could have been made. But have you ever tried to get up onto a raft when you're <laughs> swimming in the water? It's not easy. I was a swimmer back in the day. I'm like, that's hard. That's a lot of work. So on the raft, did you notice that Rose is singing to herself as she's trying to survive? Oh, I didn't. There's a scene after most of the other people have died where she is just sort of waiting for something to happen, waiting for rescue before she eventually freezes to death. And she's lying on her back looking up at the sky and she's singing a song. And I got curious about that. That's a real song called Come Josephine in My Flying Machine, which this is 1912. The first flying machine successfully flew nine years before that. The song was written in 1910 and was sort of an early hit song that was originally meant to have a bigger part in this movie. There's another part which did make it into the final cut of the movie where Jack sings it to Rose early on, but it's sort of like under his breath. You don't really hear it. I think it's when he sings it to Rose again in the I'm flying scene where they're on the the bow of the ship and, Mm. you know, he shows her the view from the front and she says, you know, I'm flying Jack. He's, He's singing it to her very quietly in that scene. And then there's a deleted scene of the the fun party below decks where they're like all singing it, I guess. Oh, interesting. And so it's meant to be sort of a through line. Hey, there's, you know, there's more to life. We can fly in the symbolic sense that they mean like, you know, I'm flying mm. Jack. And this is like this thing in the end that she's like clinging to. Life really is worth living. You know, don't let go. All that. That's cool. I mean, it's cool that it was like of the time period too. So we know that. Sorry. Sorry, everybody. Jack doesn't make it. Not sure if you were <laughs> if you were in suspense about that. And Rose does. Now, she says that old lady Rose in the narration, which I thought was completely unnecessary for this movie. Old lady Rose says that he saved me in every way that a person can be saved. What do we make of Oh, that? I was that was, I was irate about that line. I was like, <laughs> I shouldn't say I was irate. I was just like, come on, Rose. Come on. <laughs> Come on, in James every Cameron. Way. I was like, every way. I was like, excuse you. Saved from sin. <laughs> yeah. Brought to the beatific vision. Even more than Catholics, I feel like, you know, the Protestants have that like, I am saved through Christ alone. <laughs> <emphasis>. <laughs> yeah, right. 
I think if Jack heard her say that, he would say, look, Rose, like I just pulled you off the ship and I, I encouraged you. Let, those are those are two ways of saving a person. Let's not. Yeah. Don't be too melodramatic here, Rose. Yeah. <laughs> she does seem a little melodramatic now. They definitely paint that into her character. Yeah. <laughs> no, my bigger issue at the end is really, I mean, what do you what do you make of the beatific vision of the eternity on the Titanic? <laughs> right, right, right. So at the, at the very end, we go back to, I guess, after old lady Rose has died and her afterlife is going back to being a young lady on the Titanic with Jack and all the most of the people who were on the ship like looking on approvingly. Not Cal, not mom, but Mr. Andrews and the captain and Molly Brown and not Rose's eventual husband or children. (laughs) That's the one that got me. I was like, okay, I understand this is the end of a movie. Like, she's being reunited with her first love. It would have been hard to introduce a character that we've never seen before in the story in that last shot. So I, I get I get that. From a movie-making perspective, totally understand. As a person as and a Catholic, I was a little offended. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that, that scene is supposed to be, like, literally Rose entering into the afterlife, or it's just meant to sort of end us on a high note. I feel like she's meant to, like, like you're meant to think that she passed away. Okay. Like she finally let go of the, like she returned the necklace to the sea where it should have been anyway. Yeah. And she has let go of, she told the story, she let go and she is now gone. (laughs) Sorry, this won't make it into the podcast. I just realized. (laughs) So these, these treasure hunter guys, you know, Bill Paxton, they're really after that jewel, right? That's what's going to pay for the whole venture. And she eventually knows this, but like, these guys don't get it. They're not being very sensitive to me as a survivor or the dead people. She tells them the whole story. And then at the end, Bill Paxton's like, I never got it, right? I, you know, I never let it in. For three years, I thought about nothing but about Titanic and I never got it. Now I get it. And Rose is like, nah, you don't deserve it. I'm still putting him in the ocean. (laughs) Take the L, Bill Paxton. Oops. Yeah, I felt like that was the ultimate, like, cheeky. She's just like, nobody gets it. I just was holding on to it. Yep. Tossing it overboard. Like, all right. My granddaughter can stay in that cozy one-bedroom place we saw at the beginning. You know, wild. Old Lady Rose drops the jewel in the ocean. And I think we see her, like, going to sleep in her quarters. I think there's a shot of that, which is maybe supposed to delicately say, and then she fell asleep. Yeah. And didn't wake up. I think that's that's maybe it's you know hinted at. So yeah, I think I think maybe you're right that there is a literal death and afterlife there. That was my take at least. Which I feel like it's it's obligatory to say any portrayal of the afterlife is never good enough. I think we maybe talked about this in Coco like Eye has not seen and ear has not not heard and nor has it so much as dawned on the heart of man what God has prepared. You cannot imagine what heaven will be like because it is the fullness of every good thing you have ever experienced in your life in a simple and eternal and infinitely perfect way there is no way to visualize that so i don't think we can criticize them for (laughs) for falling short there (laughs) you dance with the one that brought you and jack is definitely the one that (laughs) that well He's not the only one, but among the cast, he was he's the one that made this movie so memorable. Yes. Him and Kate Winslet together, not to give Kate Winslet short shrift, because she does a she does an admirable job as well. Yeah. I mean, talk about like obviously James Cameron is a well known, famous movie maker even at the time. But Big Jim. talk about 
incredible casting to basically have cast like two iconic actors of their generation. Yeah. Like there's lots of people who are like hot for a few years and fade away. Like those two have had 20 year careers. It's incredible. Oh, yep. We've we've recorded for longer than it took the Titanic to sink. So I think we should probably <laughs> leave it there. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks for having me, good friend. Please be sure to share this podcast with your friends, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now, and God love you. <laughs>